Oh, good morning. How are you? Hey, I want to, hey, thank, I'm glad to be here. I, uh, I want to tell all, all of you, thank you for praying for me, keeping me in prayer. I uh, received a, the best phone call I could have gotten about uh, whether I had an aggressive cancer and they came back and said, you don't, which then puts me in a really, really good position to, uh, you know, come up and do this again. <laughs> and so thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think we've got more texts, more cards, more love than, than any, any time ever. And so we thank you so much. I knew, someone asked me the other day, you know, when, you, when we started the church, uh, what were you hoping to, you know, see from the church? And I just also wanted to feel like a part of the church not just the pastor, but a member, fellow co-laborer, and someone who's a part of a family. And so thank you for showing that to us as a family. We feel like we are a part of a family, and so you guys displayed that well. Thank you very much. And so you now get to hear this voice for, depending on how uh, long you like sermons, Rick, but it sounds like my voice is strong. <laughs> um, I wanted to say that, and, um, and then I wanted to say uh, also thank you for everyone who has pitched in from digging ditches to uh, chipping up concrete to cleaning up and uh, everything that we're doing out here in the bathrooms, uh, and I've got to just give a special thanks to Rob Frontier. You are a champion. I know you don't want to hear it, Rob. I mean... But uh, you really are uh, someone, I mean, it feels like you're here every day. I mean, he's on staff, basically. So uh, thank you for your hard work and your service. And you're leading a lot of people uh, in, in organizing it so well. Thank you. And um, for everybody who's volunteered, everybody who's given financially to help us get going, we were in a unique position um, as a church. We're, we're not like some big, giant church. And so, but we got a lot of power packed. Uh, passion in our church. So we, we were even able to start our, our, our phase, I mean, over half paid for um, um, to get it going. And so, uh, but I do want to encourage you, if you feel like, oh, I want to jump in on this, whether it's volunteering and helping, jumping in and watching this playground go up, these bathrooms go up, or anything with what we're doing electrically wise to upgrade the whole infrastructure of the campus, um, feel free to jump in. We have a campaign that's going to run until December, and the end of December, and we believe that uh, the, the amount we're trying to raise, which is 50000 is very, very doable. And so just pray, ask God, what do you, how do you want me to contribute? And it doesn't have to be financial. We got it. Some, some, some of us are not there. Um, but we can contribute in so many other ways. And if anything, praying for what God's going to do with this campus and these efforts that everyone's putting in for the future, for the work God's going to do here. So um, we're not just building a building. We're not just adding bathrooms. We're increasing our capacity for ministry. And so I thank you for everybody for, for what you've done so far and what you're uh, going to be doing in the future. So um, if you want to volunteer, you want to help, you want to give, you can do that all through the website. Um, and then uh, emailing and Chad puts you into a place where you can get involved in something that we're doing on campus here. And plus, you know what? You get to meet somebody else while you're digging dirt, right, Victor? You were there digging so hard while I watched. It was incredible. <laughs> 
Two announcements really fast. We have Rancho La Hermosas, and that's our Christmas project. We did it last year. I personally was able to be there and watch the excitement of these kids when they opened a personalized gift that had their shoe sizes, their things just for them. And watching them just got just get so, so excited. And so you can do that. You can sign up, uh, sponsor a child. Uh, we'll be delivering the gifts uh, uh, during our December 11th trip. You can purchase one pair of shoes, one toy, and bring your wrap gifts back by December 5th here at the church. Additional information can be found at the welcome table. Also, you can scan this little QR code here that has all of our announcements on it uh, with your phone. If you don't know how to do that or know what a QR code is, just go to our website, just type it in. But um, it's the easiest way just to get on uh, what we're doing as a church. Secondly, we have our welcome lunch, and that is December 5th. It's on a Sunday. It's after service. If you haven't been to one of these welcome lunches, we go over our core values. We go over what our mission is at church. We go over, and, and, and it's an opportunity to ask questions to get to know us as a staff and, um, and each other of what are we about, where are we going, what, what are the core principles of this church, and what are we doing? And uh, you get to learn about what our beliefs are, how, how we, uh, uh, what are the core values, I would say, of our faith and what we believe in teaching and moving in as this church. So um, you can do those two things. You can sign up on the app or the website. Signing up is good because we know how much food to give you. By the way, there's food. And then uh, you can jump in, and it's about an hour and a half long, but um, you won't regret it. You, you'll learn so much about the church. And so if you're kind of looking that way of like, what's this church about? I want to get a little bit more information. That's a really good thing, uh, time to do it. That is all the announcements I have, and I'm going to go ahead and bring up Chad. He's going to close out this series before we jump into the next. So could you guys welcome up Chad? Thanks, Ryan. Oh. We just got you back. Come on. I'm not preaching next week. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, as a staff, we are definitely relieved. Ryan, uh, you know, when he was leaving to go have surgery for cancer, he was like, I'll be back like two weeks, two weeks, like not, not an issue. We're just like, okay, or are we planning Christmas without you? And like, you know, anyway, so it's it very relieved seeing him on campus this past week and, and um, at the men's breakfast and helping after. And thank you once again to everyone who helped on the renovations. And, and yeah, if you're interested, sign up on that list. My goal is to get like 40 people on that list. And then whenever we find out, oh, we got to backfill the trenches tomorrow, I'll, I'll email out anyone, you know, and, and hope to get kind of three or four from that list to show up on that day. So don't worry. It's not that if you sign up, you're expected at everything. You know? And, um, but it, it is good. We've got a, a perfect record of every phase of this project so far. We have broke a water line and cut our internet lines. So <laughs> if you're watching live, it was, you barely made it this morning. We fixed it. Yeah, that was actually me. I, I was demoing a wall. And I saw this, and I was like, I think that's like an old like cable TV line. We don't need that. Cut, rip the wall out. And then last night, I'm like, man, why can I not access our security cameras, our, our, our door access? What, what is going on? I realized, I don't think that was cable TV. I think that was our internet. So anyways, had some help this morning. We got that figured out. But anyways, um, my name is Chad Frontier, as Ryan said. I'm the associate pastor here, and, uh, and excited to, to close out this little mini-series we've done. But let me pray, and then we'll jump into it. Dear Heavenly Father, we gather here today as your body united, as a group of believers who are centered around our need for you, our dependency on you. 
Lord, we thank you for what you've done in each of our lives individually, and that we get to come, we get to worship, we get to celebrate that uh, together. Lord, we thank you for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been on this little series. If you, if you haven't uh, watched it yet, I'll, I'll, I'll get you up to speed. But this little series has been called Unresolved. And uh, throughout the past couple years, you know, as Ryan and I have been working on sermons, there's, there's a couple issues that we've found uh, that affect our ability to interpret Scripture. A couple issues that we, we keep saying, oh, we have to remember this as we read this book, as we read this book, as we read this book. We have to remember these issues because they were um, affected how they were written, and so they affect how we interpret them. And so, so far we've talked about them. We've talked about persecution. We've talked about Gnosticism, this, this, this um, Greek, uh, you know, Plato's, you know, uh, ideology, philosophy, uh, that all it comes down to saying that all flesh, all, all flesh is bad. Anything of this earth is evil. And uh, th there's some interesting movements that are even going on today that are kind of resurrecting this idea that what is spiritual is pure and perfect and what is physical is evil and bad, but then that becomes incongruent with the idea that God became flesh in Christ. And it makes no room for our atonement. It makes no room for our salvation that we have. And it's been interesting talking about these. So this series has been talking about a little bit of the historical aspect as well as how it affects us in our world today. And this last one that we want to talk about for our unresolved series is division. Namely, in the church. Church division, church infighting, church splits. Can you raise your hand if you've ever been a part of, of a, a church split of any, of any kind? It's crazy. It's of being a, a modern Christian is that, you know, you've had that in your tool belt in the past. So I've been a part of this church split and that church split and this divide and this divide. And, and the reality is it's, it's a very human issue that we have. I don't think it's anything to do with the church. It's that it's sinful people, us, who are occupying the church. And there's a million reasons that we should be divided. In this room, we have people of different ethnicities, different cultures, different backgrounds. Democrats, let me tell you, we have Republicans in this room. And Republicans, let me tell you, there's Democrats in the room too. I'm sorry to say it, you know, but we're all in the room together. We're all in this together. I wish today was actually Communion Sunday because that's one of the beautiful things about this one table down here is it doesn't matter who you are, you need this table. It doesn't matter who you are, you need Christ. But we are just by nature divisive. I think one of the best examples of this is sports, right? Can you put this picture up? I'm, I'm a Rams fan. And, uh, it, it's, wow, three weeks ago I would have said that a little bit stronger, but yeah, right now I'm a Rams fan, and, uh, and, uh, but we go to a bunch of the games, and it's almost a guarantee that you're going to see some of this, right? Especially if you're playing the Raiders, but it's a guarantee that you're going to see some fighting going on in the stadium, you know? And, uh, and I wish I was uh, ethically mature enough to say, mm, oh, that's terrible, but no, to be honest, you know, everyone's, everyone's looking, everyone's wanting to see it, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the game. Uh, but this is just such, such a part of sports, right? It just naturally divides you when you put on different jerseys. It divides you. And I always love is, is when there's games where this is going the whole time, and then you watch after the game, and you see the players. They all come and meet in the middle, and they're shaking hands. They're giving each other hugs. They played together in college. They're exchanging jerseys. And you realize, like, what is this animosity that we all think we feel when the players don't even really feel it, you know? And I think about the fact that what if we took some of these people in these pictures, that one on the right, that is just fantastic. What if we take some people from these pictures 
and we take them out of their jerseys and put in, in regular clothes and we set them next to each other at two tables in a restaurant, do you think this would happen? No. If one of them starts singing happy birthday, the other one's gonna, table's gonna join in and be happy for them. That, that just putting on this jersey just gave a, a reason, an excuse to divide that wasn't there before. It's the same within the churches. We have infinite amounts of reason to divide, and, and throughout human history, we keep finding excuses to. I, I love this one uh, story that comes out, and I love's a strong word. It's, it's fascinating. The story that comes out of uh, the World War II POW march, uh, of the Bataan Death March. So 60,000 American and Filipino soldiers um, who had been POWs for a long time already, are already famished, are exhausted, are dehydrated, are forced to walk 70 miles, and many of them die on the way. But there's this fascinating story that comes out in the middle of it, where a U.S. soldier is walking and sees a, a Japanese soldier going by on a horse by him, and he recognizes his class ring. It's a Notre Dame ring. Uh, did I say that right? N Notre Dame. Yeah, Notre Dame ring, right? And the, the incredible thing is, is he, he asked the officer, oh, did, you, did you go to Notre Dame? It says, yeah, it turns out they actually graduated together. They both were there, both graduated the same year together in the same graduation ceremony. And, and now one of them is an officer forcing the other one to march to his death. And it's these weird moments where just because their uniform is different or their flag is different, they hate each other, they want to kill each other. But when they step back, they realize that they have more in common than not. It takes so little for us to turn against each other. And shouldn't we as Christians know better? Shouldn't we? Because the teaching is very clear. Let, let me read this one. Philippians 2. It's a great verse. It says, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. If I can beg you one thing, make my joy complete, be of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of a human, human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, as believers who, who know these scriptures, who see these clear teachings of Paul just begging the church, if there's one thing I can, you just make me happy, one thing, it's just be united. And shouldn't we know better? And shouldn't Christ be enough to bring us together to overcome the, the, the plurality of reasons that we should be divided amongst ourselves? Shouldn't Christ be enough? There's this additionally fascinating case study, essentially, that got played on, on the entire global stage in 1994. At a time when the United States was 68% Christian. The country of Rwanda was 94% Christian in the early 90s. And the 94 being the Rwandan genocide. Now, if you just let that sit with you for a second, and in Africa, they do church more than we do church, right? You've heard this. That's the thing where they're, they're there all day and it's a part of their life. 
Uh, it's not just now we're on Sunday. It is. It is their community. 94% of this nation that became uh, divided into this civil war and this, this genocide, 800,000 Rwandans killed. 94% were Christian. There's examples, and I'm, I'm overting uh, the graphic details, but if you're, if you're ever interested in this, there's a phenomenal book that, that's trying to understand how this happened. Um, it's called um, in, in the Mirror, was it, can we put that picture up? Mirror, Mirror to the Church. And it's talking about the fact that how could a country that's 94% Christian divulge into this? How could a, a people that's, that is through and through so centered around Christ and the church let something like this happen? And let me read this, this uh, account. A man named Adalbert recalls how the Saturday of Easter week he went to his usual choir practice at the church in Kabungo. We sang hymns, he says, in good feeling with our Tutsi compatriots. Our voices still blending in, in chorus, he remembers. But when they, turned for na- when, they, when they returned for Mass the next morning, the Tutsis were not there. They had already fled into the bush. This angered the Hutus in the church, including Albert. They immediately organized to chase after the Tutsi church members. We, he says this, We left our Lord and our prayers inside to rush home, Albert remembers. We changed from our Sunday best into our workday clothes. We grabbed clubs and machetes and went straight off to killing. Brothers and sisters who had sung together the day before were suddenly mortal enemies. Now that's an extreme example, but once again, I keep asking, isn't Christ enough? They had accepted Christ. Their life was built around the church, and yet, I mean, can you imagine that? In, in, in a context like ours, one week it's Second Sunday, the next week it's, it's Hunger Games or something. You know what I mean? Like, I, just, I can't understand how this is even possible, but it is. And I think we're almost naive to the fact that it's possible, because we come to church and it all feels good and happy, and we're eating donuts and shaking hands at the door, but then something happens, a, a disagreement, a decision's made, a, a direction is taken, and there's this division that causes, and suddenly that division is all we can see, and we forgot about the, the, the piece of connection that we used to have, and suddenly that, that, that issue is all that we see, and it leads to division. Shouldn't Christ be enough? Division in the church has been around since the very first church. I, I love this example. This comes out of Matthew 20, okay? This is the very first church. This is Jesus with his group of disciples. And listen to what happens. And I can totally hear something like this happening in our world today. Listen to this. Chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, came to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking, right? At that point, most of the disciples believed that Jesus was going to throw a coup, was going to take control of Jerusalem, take control of Israel, that it was going to be setting up a new government here on this earth, a physical government. And two of the disciples, in front of all the other disciples, come with their mom who asks, hey, can they be the, your number one and number two? And I think everyone's mad that they just didn't think of it first, you know? Uh, let's keep reading this. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Right? He knows what's coming. He knows the sacrifice that's coming for him. And, and, and says, are you able to drink what I am to drink? Are you going to take the same task that I took? They said to him, we are able. 
He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup. You will indeed also be killed for my kingdom. But to sit at my right and left hand, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were angry at the two brothers. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. The earthly rulers, the, the governments around you, the, the secular authorities, you know they lord it over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying, my kingdom's different. And I think when we see these examples of division in the church, it's because all of our outside influence is coming in and directing how we work together. Right? You might work in, in a, a, a cutthroat industry, and that's what work is for you, is, is that for you to succeed, others need to, need to lose. And maybe that's what your work is, but when you come in here, that's not how this runs. Church has to be different, as Christ models. You know, one example that I think is interesting um, is uh, the way Protestants look at something called the Great Schism. So if you've heard of Martin Luther, uh, and this was the Great Schism was when Protestantism broke off from Catholicism. First and foremost, both are Christian. Um, I hear so many people all the time say, oh, I used to be Catholic, but then I became Christian. I was like, no, no, Christian the whole time. You used to go to one church, go to a different church. That's, yeah, all together, you're good, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, Protestants are, are the many denominations that have broken off from Catholicism. And uh, what's fascinating is I think a lot of times Protestants look back at the Great Schism as this triumph, as this, this act of, of independence, like the American Revolution. You can put up this picture, right? We, 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 maybe you've heard this or you've, you've seen the, the movie of, of Martin Luther, you know, pounding the, the 95 theses, right? The 95 theses is... His 95 issues he had with the, with the church, the Catholic church, and he was, he was a clergyman at the time. He was a priest. And, and you know, nailing that to the door is this defiant moment. But do you know who thought the great schism and the Protestant branch coming out was the biggest tragedy? It was Martin Luther. Martin Luther considered himself a Catholic almost till the end of his life. Long after the Pope excommunicated him, Martin Luther still considered himself a Catholic. He was actively trying to stop the schism that was happening, and it was turning to bloodshed very quickly. Towards the end of his life, he kind of gave up on, on waiting for the, the Pope to, to receive him again, and, and so then that started Protestantism moving from there. And even this, this picture we see of this 95 Thesis, a lot of people don't know this, this is actually the standard way that a, someone, a clergyman, was supposed to raise issues in the church. Because we see it as, as, you know, spray painting the front door and he does it in front of a crowd here, an audience and all that. But literally, if you were a clergyman in the church and you had a question, an issue, a, a concern, you would write it, you would nail it to the front door, and it was like a bulletin board at the front door. Please uh, just send us an email, though, in the future. That's <laughs> prefer that. But you would nail your complaint or your issue or your concern on this front door. It would allow everyone else, all the other clergymen, to see it and think about it. And then they would schedule, okay, hey, next Sunday night, we're all going to gather and we're going to discuss this. That's literally the way that was always handled. Martin Luther went through the direct channels. What happened is someone saw it, read it, took it down off it, ran it through a printing press, and just leafleted the entire area. Uh, and that kind of created a movement of people who were angry uh, that just got out of control. 
But division is a tragedy. And Martin Luther would be the first person to reiterate that. Now, I, I do understand and I want to appreciate the fact that people have different stylistic differences. Um, and, you know, we have some people who come to the church for the first time and we will even tell them, we believe that it's important that you find the right fit. And so if there's a kind of church, a style of church that you connect with better, that's okay. And we'll even give some recommendations if you feel like this is not the church for you. We believe that, okay? I understand that. I, I, I uh, can, can sympathize with that ability to find a church that you feel like fits your worship style, your community style, your teaching style. I get that. But I think it can divulge so much or become so comfortable with that that picking churches is like picking a Netflix show where you get five minutes into it and like, nah, next, next. Or you pick an ice cream and you're sampling everything. You know what I mean? Where I think division has become way too common in our vernacular, too, too frequent of an excuse, too easy of an option. I, um, I was debating talking about this just because I, I, I'm not seeking to judge anyone in this time, but households of, of divorce know that the, 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 the case for their children to run the same course is, is higher because it's a part of their vernacular. It's a part of their language. Um, and it's, it's a tragedy all the way around, um, but there's no judgment in that. We understand this is a, a broken world and we're dealing with, with, with vulnerable people. But I did this one wedding. I officiated this one wedding, um, Dean Poloma's wedding. Some of you guys know the Polomas. And they did this thing during the ceremony that I thought was just incredible. Was they had everyone out on the dance floor. And then they said, if you're married, stay on the dance floor. If you're not, sit down. And they said, if you've been married for five years, stay on the dance floor. If not, sit down. Ten years, stay on the dance floor. If not, sit down. Twenty, thirty, forty. And they said, if you've been married 50 years, stay on the dance floor. If not, sit down. And there were eight people on the dance floor. It was the four couples of the grandparents of the bride and the groom. And I still, I mean, guys, I've done, I did two weddings this weekend. Like, we, we, I've done a lot of weddings, but that one sticks out to me. Um, because I remember that, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if, if this couple even acknowledges what a blessing, what a gift is happening right here. Because divorce is not a part of their vernacular. It's not a part of their vocabulary. It's not an, it's not an option that's been modeled for them, and so they, they are, are, are more likely to fight through when they need to. I say that with a lot of grace. Uh, I, I do not mean to judge anyone who has uh, had divorce in their, in their history, but I think people who have would acknowledge the, the difficulty and the destruction that it can cause um, more, more, than, more than myself. I think when it comes to the church, I think division has been too easily in our vocabulary. I think if something that I don't like happens, it is too easy of an option for me to just leave. Too easy of an option for me to just see what else is available on Netflix, see what else is available at the ice cream shop. I was thinking about this all week. I was trying to think, what is the core answer to this issue of division? And I would think I would have one and then I would kind of play around it a while and say, well, it doesn't fit in that circumstance or that circumstance. And, and ultimately I came down to this, and I believe this wholeheartedly. The answer to division in the church is a commitment to surrender. Surrendering our desires, our ambitions, our priorities, our traditions, our feelings, and our pride. Now, um, we are familiar as Christians with the surrender language. Last week we talked, we shared the gospel at the end, and we talked about the, the fact that when you uh, acknowledge that God's way, the way of love modeled in Christ, is better than the way that I've been doing my life, you surrender to His way. 
you accept Christ as your Messiah, your Lord and Savior, and you surrender to His way. And I think we're very comfortable with that idea as Christians of surrendering to God's way. But what I want to bring up is I do not think that surrendering is a one-time decision at your conversion. I think as believers, you enter into a life of surrendering. Every nook and cranny of your, of your being continuously ends up getting surrendered. Let me read this. Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to become my followers, this is Christ speaking, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Daily. That word doesn't stick out in the way I first read that verse. Right? Let them deny themselves and take up their cross. Okay, that through Christ, you know, our, ourselves are crucified with him. I surrender to him. But then it's all good and resurrection and life and then after. No, daily. Daily is this decision. Daily is this commitment to say, I surrender my ambitions, my desires. I surrender my pride to what you have for me, Lord. Let me do another. Guys, I, I, I love history sometimes. Let me give another example. Uh, can you throw this picture up? This is uh, the Japanese surrender on September 2nd, 1945 on the battleship Missouri, right? This is a very iconic moment. Uh, I've been on that battleship. It's in, uh, it's in Hawaii, right? You can tour it right next to the memorial for the Arizona. You, you can see it. And it's this incredible moment that I think for us, we can simplify and say, oh, that was the end of the war in the Pacific, right? Right, right there, it was done. The reality is, do you think they signed that paper and then everything was over instantly. No. That was a massive, complicated process. Go ahead and put this next one up. Over on that day and the next day, there were something like 20 different surrenders that had to happen all throughout the Pacific with the Japanese. All these different fleets, all these different uh, you know, holdings of, of, of territory that had to be delivered. I mean, ships and, and aircraft and, uh, and weapons that had to be handed over. Let me read this excerpt. I thought this was interesting. Uh, you can just leave that up. A nearly simultaneous surrender ceremony was held on September 2nd aboard the USS Portland, where Vice Admiral George Murray accepted the surrender of the Carolines from a senior Jap Japanese military and civilian officials. Following the signing of the instrument of surrender, many further surrender ceremonies took place across Japan's remaining holdings of the Pacific. Japanese forces in Southeast Asia surrendered on September 2nd in Penyang, uh, September 10th in Laban, Laban, September 11th in Sarawak, and September 12th in Singapore and Taiwan on October 25th. It was not until 1947, two years after the, uh, the war had ended, that all prisoners held by American and, Brit, uh, by American and Britain were repatriated, were returned. As late as April 1949, China still had 60,000 Japanese prisoners, you know, four years after the war's done. Some were not repatriated until the late 1950s. Logistical demands of the surrender were formidable. After ja Japan's capitulation, uh, more than, than 5.4 million Japanese soldiers and 1.8 million Japanese sailors were taken prisoner by the Allies. The damage done to Japan's infrastructure combined with a severe famine in 1946 further complicated the Allies' effort to feed these Japanese POWs and civilians. The state of war between the Allies and Japan officially ended when the Treaty of San Francisco took effect April 28, 1952. Japan and the Soviet Union formally made peace four years later when they signed their joint declaration in 1956. And Japanese holdouts, especially on small Pacific islands, refused to surrender at all, believing that the declaration to be some form of propaganda uh, or considering surrender to be against their code. Uh, for many years after. 
this next picture, uh, Teru Nakamura was the last known hand holdout who emerged from his hidden retreat in Indonesia in December of 1974. Almost 30 years after the war ended, there was still, and, and this is what happened is often the Japanese soldiers were spread out. And there's thousands of Pacific, small Pacific islands and they'd be, you know, one or two of them on an island with a radio. You know, if you see a U.S. plane going over, radio it in kind of thing. But then after the war, they had to go find them all. They had to collect them all. And, and some, like this one, and, and when they would find them, they would tell them, hey, the war's over. And they would say, you're just telling me that. And they'd be fighting back. And I know with this, this case, it was 30 years later, and they actually had to go find his old officer, his superior, I think it was in his 80s at this time, find a Japanese historic uniform and put him in it to go and tell him the war was done. And actually, we're now allies with them, fighting different wars together. You know, it's confusing from that. But my point is, Surrender was not a single moment. Surrender took 30 years to slowly weed this out, to slowly hand over arms, to slowly change. Clearly, surrender is not a one-time thing. It's a commitment to continue to surrender wherever you find another holdout in your life. And this is the reality of the church, that the longer you are a part of the church community, the more you are asked to surrender and the less and less each Sunday becomes about you. Now, this sounds harsh, but this is the reality of communal living. Uh, let me give you this example. Before you got married, what time did you wake up? Whatever time you want to wake up. What time did you go to sleep? Whatever time you want to go to sleep. What did you eat for dinner? Whatever you want to eat for dinner. A lot of little Caesars back then, right? Well, before you got married, you, your, your life was your own. Your decisions were your own. Then you got married. And there were some sacrifices that had to be made, some surrenderings that had to be made. There was suddenly another schedule, but it was still pretty easy. Let's think about that, right? And then you had kids, and everything gets surrendered, right? I, you know what still drives me crazy is how long it takes to get in and out of a car. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I feel like I would hop in my truck. My door wouldn't even be closed. I would be moving, you know what I mean, like slowly getting seatbelt on as I'm already driving. I just would get in and go, you know, and get to the store and hop out and back in two minutes later or whatever. And now it's just like... Oh man, having to, you know, and convince them we're getting in the car seat now, and you know, and they want to do it themselves, and you can't do it yourself. And okay, no, I want to drive, you can't drive, you're two, you know. Oh my goodness, right? It just you have to surrender so much. It's always starting to get to watch a little bit of TV. Do you think we watch my shows? No, we watch Daniel Tiger's neighborhood, and it drives me insane. Um but we surrender of ourselves. Why? For the good of the family. The longer we go, it's less about my needs. It's more about the family's needs. And it is the same with the church. Now, there are many in this room who have read their Bible way more than I have. There are many in this room who have a deeper intimacy with Christ than I have. So why do you still come? Why are you still listening? Why are you, why are you listening to me, it's because you know that the more you grow in your faith, the less and less Sunday becomes about you, and it becomes about those in the room who maybe are, are, are younger in their faith, or, or more immature in their faith, and they need to be growing. Now, this sounds really disappointing. Uh, I hear that. I hear that. I'm, this sounds very disappointing. Uh, but if this makes sense to you, uh, that's because you already are more concerned with others in the room than you are yourself. And maybe there's a sermon that he starts getting told and you're like, you know what? I have heard the Good Samaritan 20 times preached, you know, but you look around and say, maybe they need to hear that. Maybe they need to hear that. Okay. 
Maybe this service is, is less about me and more about them. This is the reality that you already experience in your families, and it takes place in the church too. And, and if it sounds disappointing, then it's probably because it's, you're still coming to the church for you, which is good. I hope that till, till the day I die, I get something out of the Sunday message, especially if I'm preaching it. But, but even, even if I'm not, you know what I mean? I, I hope that I get something out of service. But, but less and less of, of the, the sermon is speaking necessarily always hitting me, always growing me, and more and more I'm showing up to Sunday saying, who can I welcome? Who can I make feel uh, uh, welcomed here? Who can I be praying for? Who needs to hear this message in this room? It becomes less about us, more about the family. Now, I want to end with this. Why should, whatever, why should we, everyone, even young believers, understand this idea of sender, surrendering for the sake of unity? Okay, maybe if you are uh, experience in your faith and you're older in your faith and you understand that you're here because you want to serve, you want to pour into others. But why should you care about this as well as why should everyone else care about this? And three points. The first is that Christ loves the church like a groom loves a bride. The church is important not just to us. It's important to Christ. And division will tear apart a church. So first and foremost, it's because we understand that Christ loves the church like a groom loves his bride, and so I, I will surrender of what I want to allow the church to thrive. Second, that the church is God's chosen vessel for restoring creation. That God came and established his kingdom, and then what he did is he, he turned to Peter and handed him the keys, and he turned to this group of disciples and said, go and, and, and confess to all nations. God has cho chosen the church as his vessel for restoring creation. And lastly, this is what I want to kind of dig into a little more, is that the church's unity, its love, is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that God continues to use. Let me read this beautiful passage. When I was in youth ministry, junior high ministry, this was our theme verse, because getting junior hires to agree and be in unity is difficult. I give you a new commandment, John 13, 34. I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's profound. Jesus is saying, when the outside worlds see you, they will say, oh, that's those Christians. Why? Because the way we, they see us treat each other. That's profound. That's a challenge. That makes me think, wow, are my relationships within this church something that I would want an outside person to see and judge, judge the unity of Christ by? And then let, let me let's share this one passage that I just find super interesting just because it's so, so practical. It's a common issue that they dealt with in the, in the church in Corinth that we don't deal with today, but we have a million scenarios that sound just like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food, sacrifice to idols, okay, this is the issue that they're dealing with. Corinth was, a, was a, a major religious hub of a lot of the Greco-Roman pagan worship. And uh, there was this dilemma that food would be you know, sacrificed and placed in front of these idols. And then at the end of the day, the food would be sold at grocery outlet, right? It would be sold a little more discounted, you know? Um, and so for a lot of believers who were uh, pretty poor, this was a cheap way to get food. That's great. But then there were other people who said, wait, 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 no, but 
but you're eating something that was dedicated to, to a, a false idol like that, that was causing issues and that was causing division in the church. Now, this is what I'm saying. It's interesting because we don't deal with that necessarily, but we have a million of our own things. I don't think, right? The, the, the drum battles of the 90s, you know, within, within the churches, right? Is that the 90s? 80s? 90s? I always remember drums. Uh, but the, the drum battles and worship in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 90s, right? There's all these things that we say, that doesn't sound reverent, that doesn't sound good, that doesn't sound like, like, like what we should be doing in church. We have a million of these in our world. Okay, let's read this. Now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all, all of us possess knowledge. Now knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We all have knowledge about this. We all have our ideas about this, is what Paul's saying. We all have our preconceived thoughts about what we think about uh, food sacrifice to idol. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. You all have these ideas, what you think about meat sacrifice to idols, uh, but let's humble ourselves and, and think about this from God's perspective. Verse 4, hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists. And there is no God but one. He's saying, look, at, we understand that that idol is a piece of rock, is a piece of wood. It's not actually a God. It's just meat that's been improperly refrigerated and being sat out for a little bit. Maybe there's more issues there. But he's saying it's not actually been given as worship to any God. It's been given to a rock. It's been given to a piece of wood, a piece of silver. There's nothing really there. Verse 5, indeed, even though there, ha uh, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods or many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist in one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom uh, are all things and through whom we exist. Okay, saying it's just a rock, it's just a piece of wood, just a piece of silver, just meat that's been sitting there. There's nothing that's actually happening. It's just meat. Verse 7, though. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. There are some believers who do not have that knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So he's saying, if you just last week came from a, 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 one of these temples where you were worshipfully giving meat to this idol and that meant something to you. Well, then if you turn around and see the, you know, the second Sunday lunch is this meat sacrifice to idols, you're going to think, wait, are these Christians worshiping that God? Are these Christians somehow intertwined with that, with that pagan religion? You know, and, and trying to understand that. So he's saying some people in the church might not have that more mature view yet. We have to be considerate of that. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do eat it, if we do not eat it, and no better off if we do. But take care of this liberty of yours. You have this freedom to eat that meat. But take care of this liberty. Sorry, I lost my place. Take care of this liberty of yours uh, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 10. For if others see you who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to point uh, to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? You're saying, if they see you eat it, well, then maybe they would say, well, maybe I should eat it too. But for them, it means something. Does that make sense? 
He's saying in, in our consciousness, we know it's just a rock, it's just a piece of wood, it's nothing, it's just, eat, it's just meat, I'm just going to eat it. But if for someone else, eating that meat is them denying Christ, then you eating this meat in front of them is going to be, uh, have dire consequences for them. Verse 11, so by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. And w- but when you thus sin against members of your family, you wound their conscience When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. Now, first of all, um, that verse is not prescriptive. Uh, We're not hearing that as as, uh, (laughs) the word of the Lord, right? You need to hear this as in that context. He's saying, if me eating meat is going to cause this new believer to stumble in their faith, because they have a very simple understanding of what this is, then don't eat it. That's interesting to me. As we now consider the plurality of issues that we have faced in the church and the plurality of issues that we will face in the future, maybe there's certain considerations that you make. And this is why I call it this commitment to surrender. It's not just that you surrendered when you accepted Christ some years ago. It's that every day you take up this cross and say, I know what I want, but God, what do you want? And then you come into a community the same way you come into your family. How destructive would a family be if it was built around just one person's needs? Saying that person's not an infant. If it was one of the parents and and everything was about what that person wanted and no one else mattered, that would be horrible. That would be destructive. In the same way as we come into the community, We continue this idea of committing to surrender. Oh, I I wish we would have done it this way. But that's okay. The unity is more important. Oh, the the Easter message feels a little bit light compared to the usual teaching. You know, there were no World War II references. It's crazy, you know. Um, (laughs) But let me look around. You know, there's some new faces. Maybe maybe this Easter message is, is, is kind of starting at square one for people who need to hear square one. It's this commitment to surrender to the needs of others in the community who are maybe at a different place. You know, the longer I think about this, uh, how much does it sound like Christ? Who washes his own disciples' feet? Who tells his disciples, no, leading in my kingdom is not getting what you want. It's serving everyone else. The first shall become last. The last shall become first. If you are the more mature in this church, there is a greater expectation that you are more willing to surrender for the needs of others. It's challenging. It's disappointing at times. I understand that. But you know what? When when you take joy in the growth of others, when you take joy in the life of others, well, that's not disappointing at all. That's something that you will find infinite joy for the rest of your time a part of a church community because you're saying... I can't believe what God's doing in that person's life. Isn't that incredible? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you take an assortment like us, an assortment that falls in in every difference, an assortment of people that have different views in the world and look different and and, and have different ideologies. You take all that and you bring us into one room together. 
Lord, we thank you that you are enough for unity, but it's not just a one-time decision to accept you. It is a daily decision that as we enter into a community, we pick up our cross. And Lord, that daily we crucify our desires. We crucify our ambitions. We crucify our, our tradition. We crucify everything that we want out of church. And we say, Lord, what do you want out of this church? We say, Lord, who do you need to touch with this church? And let me just be a vessel in that. Lord, we thank you for the example of your son Christ when he led his disciples. That he did not lord his authority over them, but he showed them that those who are the wisest, those who are the most mature spiritually are the ones who sacrifice and surrender of themselves for others. Lord, let that desire, let that commitment for surrender to become infectious in this church. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you stand with us for this last song?